The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. I hear screams of joy. This sounds a little loud, guys. Screams of joy. That's how much fun they're having, I hope. Anyway, the, uh, this morning is uh, the, the, the remnant of last night. The fall festival was just magnificent. Uh, I, we, uh, I was instructed what I'm going to say here, so I'm going to read this. For thanking the staff, an amazing team of deacons, ministry leaders, and church family that stepped up to serve by decorating setting out tables, judging pies, serving food, running games, watching kids on the moon bounces, making uh, cotton candy, filling water jugs, and taking out trash to serve our church and community. It was amazing. Thank you all for serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, I was not allowed by people I love very much, not to uh, cite individuals, but you know who you are. You know who you are, and we love you so much. We love you so much, and we are so grateful for your servant heart. Uh, Brian beat me to this, but I refuse to be silent on this one. Our two boys, Sam Ritter and Elijah uh, Roberts, uh, headed for Paris Island. I don't think they're there yet, but they're going to be there. Please be praying for them. They they, uh, serve and protect and they make a tremendous sacrifice, as we all know, in going through this kind of Spartan regime in order to be prepared for protecting our country, which leads me to this. I, I, every year about this time, and it's time, I say this, please vote, please vote. I believe in truth, justice, and the way. That's the Jesus way. That's how I vote. You, if you tell me the truth, if you're for life, truth, if you're for justice and the American way, that's how I vote. There, I didn't cite a candidate. I'm citing a heart. This is an amazing place. And it's not over for my dear country yet when two boys like that are going out there to fight and defend and protect us from harm both foreign and domestic. So thank God for them. Please, Christians, vote. Secondly, thirdly, um, as I, uh, well, for, <laughs> fourthly, thank you guys so much. I see some of you here, moms and dads from different parts of the country. You would come in the fall, wouldn't you? I know it's a gray day, but this is a great, when the leaves start falling and fall comes, Virginia, it, for me, it's at its very best. So I hope you're experiencing that some, some as you're here. What I want to do this morning, and uh, let me just see that I've covered what I intended to, um, is i talk to you uh, briefly <laughs> I hope, on Mark chapter 7, this is where we are, and I was encouraged, first of all, let me say this, there's nothing I say up here that is is not a derivative of the greatest commentators ever, every word is attached to a Matthew Henry or a, not not my words, but their words, I, I, I have nothing particularly original, but hopefully I have something helpful for you. And I just want you to know that out of my conscience, out of my rigid, strict conscience, and I'm bringing this up because that's somewhat what this is about. You know, it's good to have a conscience. It's correct and right. But some of us kind of have a false assumption about life that everything we do somehow is wrong. Everything we're off. 
we were raised in obsessive compulsive families. Uh, that means they dot all their I's and cross all their T's and everything we do has the sense of a little anxiety. I might get it wrong, something might be wrong, something might be off. But that's not really what Jesus is like, no. Not really. You know, uh, Charles Spurgeon is, as far as I know, the greatest preacher in the English language. When you read his material, it's unreal. And, you know, he stood up uh, I, I, in preparing for this. I wanted to see what Charles said. And this particular section, in the, in, the, in the material I read, he said nothing. I think he found it difficult. And he began, began to speak in one of the sermons that was right by this. And he, he was up in front of his people and he said... I have done this a long time, and he probably wasn't far from his own death. And he said, it still is difficult. I still look back on my own frailty and weakness when I present a message to people. And I wonder if I can do it. And, then, and, and I remember how when the uh, Hebrew children came out of Egypt and they crossed the seas and they had to fight battles and wait by faith for, for provision. All these things, one day at a time, they had to walk through. And so I come to you in utter weakness, he was saying, utter weakness. If the Lord does not speak, then nothing will be spoken. You'll remember he said whenever he came to the pulpit, and he's near death now, and the sermon was very touching. I only did a paragraph or two of it, but it was rich not simply in content, but in heart. And he just is seeing his, his flickering light fading, and yet he knew that the Lord Jesus was with him, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And before he preached, he always says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It is so important that we not simply be religious and follow a preset system of rules and regulations that someone else writes up for us. What is much more important than that, than that is to be in an intimate relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, my original title for this was The Commandment of God. Good. And the tradition of men And the commandment of God, we know what the Ten Commandments are. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, etc., etc. And the two great commandments are, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And everything else that's good and right and holy and beautiful extends from those. But some thought they had a better idea for God's people. Mark 7, 1 through 23. I'm going to somewhat race through it. And let's hope I make it. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, the Lord Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, let me just discuss that. Scribes and Pharisees were very interesting to watch, beyond interesting. They had dedicated their lives to the study of God's word. For about four centuries prior to Christ, they had formed. They were people who looked at what God said in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they analyzed that and analyzed the law of God, the Ten Commandments, these pillars of truth that were good for everybody, but then they had a great idea. They would expand through their own traditions, their own intellect, their own ideas, and ex accelerate what God had said improve on the simplicity of his laws and his spirit 
and do things kind of in their own way. I don't know what the motive was for them doing this. I'm not sure. But we have here a moment of radical change in the church where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes on the scene to discuss things with people who form the traditions of men. These rules were written down ultimately in about two centuries after the Lord Jesus or some uh, period of time. They were put together in a, a document or documents, books and books called the Mishnah, thousands of rules and regulations to keep you from being unclean. And by unclean, we mean ceremonially unclean, not simply your hands being washed, which we'll look at for a moment, but unclean in your heart. In essence, there was a sense of separation from God when we did wrong, when we were off-center, off-kilter. Can you imagine having thousands of bystanders in letters and sentences glaring at your life every day of your life? peering at you to find some kind of fault, some kind of detail. This is a, a strange phenomenon that happened, and yet the people went along with it. So zealous were they, this is a sweet thing, so zealous were they to please the Lord, at least outwardly, that they went on with this form of bondage. It was a form of slavery. The works of the law do not justify men, as we've said many times, as J.B. Phillips said, they are the straight edge to show us how crooked we are, leading us to grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's behalf. It is not by works of righteousness that we have done. It has been according to his mercy that he saves us. And that's the message Jesus brings. But in bringing it, he becomes a bit of a target and a bit of a distraction to those who have been in charge of the religious institutions of the time. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Remember, he's worked miracles, he's walked on water, he's done things that no man has ever done. There was no one like him, and massive crowds were following. But some guys, some guys with suitcases, maybe a tie, maybe a set of glasses or binoculars to look at the details of Jesus' life and find fault with him for some reason because they felt their own particular, I suspect, economic kingdom was going to be disturbed by this man. They came and peered at him. And they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled. Oh, that's a strong word. That is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, came, come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. There were many things that they wanted and wanted Jesus to do and teach his disciples, which were in line with their ancestors, with what they taught and not what the word of God. In, in other words, just to have a meal, you were to wash your hands, but you had to only use a certain amount of water. That would be a, an eggshell, one eggshell and a half eggshell. Now, who carried the eggshells to the banquets? I don't know, but you, you come in and you had help or somebody, you got water on your hands, and what you would do is you would clean them by having one be a fist so the outside is there, and you're cleaning the inside of this hand with one fist, 
And then to be right with God, to get things right so you wouldn't be unclean, you took the other fist and, and rubbed that because you had had water poured on it from the wrists on down. And then when you were done, the water was now dirty, dirty from your hand. It was unclean. So you had to have somebody come and starting at the wrist, pour water on you and go down until your hands were clean. Your external nature in some way was symbolically cleansed. Well, there were thousands of rules like that to live by, as elucidated by the uh, uh, priests and Levites. And the difference between Jesus and them is quite profound, and it is the very, as uh, one of my writers said, essence and core uh, between Jesus and the Orthodox Jew of his time. Why were people not obeying the traditions of the elders? Uh, the Ten Commandments were not enough. What about the thousands of rules? Can you imagine every day of your life being an honest person and seeing how you had failed? I remember going to Jerusalem, and you've heard me say this before, it was only one time in my life, and there was a wire going around Jerusalem and in order to, this is where the law is still in effect for some or for many. And, and in order to be right before God, you were only allowed to do a Sabbath day's journey. On a Sabbath day, you were to rest, but you were allowed to go a certain distance. That was delineated by a wire around the city. You didn't want to go past that or you were unclean. And some of the penalties for being a clean, unclean were Drastic. It, it called for a form of separation. This was called the oral law. And this not having your hands washed could distance you in some way from God. To omit so to wash your hands, as I just described, was to become liable to poverty and destruction. Bread to eat, that was eaten with unwashed hands was uh, no different from excrement, forgive the language. You see, this was a major sin and a major failing according to these particular individuals. They're trying not so much to find fault with people which they're already describing, but to take down Jesus, the Messiah. Why? Because he was shaking the very foundation of their life. And yet what he was really doing is setting captives free from hasty and incorrect determinations made by men. You know, one man took this uh, thing on hand washing so uh, powerfully, a rabbi, he was imprisoned, and they gave him this, this uh, eggshell and a half of water, but rather than drink it to stay alive, he used it to wash his hands. He barely escaped the prison alive in serving his God. If you didn't eat the right things, the kosher things, the correct things, you put your very life at risk in, in light of what God's perfection demanded. There were boys that were tortured and executed by certain people because they did not do all of this the right way. I remember being out to lunch with a Jewish friend of mine who's a Messianic Jew, and we just wondered out loud whether he could have a, a breakfast with bacon in it because this was one of the things that made you unclean. And to his great credit, as, as a believer in Christ, he took a tiny piece and just said, I'm free. I don't like bacon. I don't eat pig stuff, but it's not a bondage to the law. 
And to show you here as an act of grace, an example to you, I'm going to have a little ham. It was said that if you ate with unclean hands, you were subject to um, a demon called Shibta. To, to admit so to wash hands was to become liable, as I said, to poverty and destruction. It was creating for you somewhat of a nightmare. Now, the reason we don't believe that is because Jesus Christ, in this passage, and this is why it's in here, we wonder, why is this, this moment in here? It's to set people free. We are not free to sin. No, that's not it. But who is the definition giver? And where does sin ultimately come from? We'll, we'll discuss that momentarily. These things that they were asking were far too much and not uh, believed on or put before them by the God of heaven and earth. And these tribal laws, these rules and regulations to the scribes and Pharisees were the very essence and symbol and type of religion. And of course they fostered pride because I am holier than thou. I am less unclean than you are. I am better than you are. And I'm far better than this Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees, verse 5, and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? He's speaking of the Holy Spirit of God, speaking on their recognized prophet. Prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He makes a distinction between that thing that was written with the very finger of God on, on, on tablets made by, uh, uh, set apart from Almighty God, on the beauty of faithfulness in marriage, on the wonder and the swift justice against murder. These things were correct. But when you expand them to a universe, a constellation of things that you can't possibly perform, then you're under un condemnation and guilt every day of your life and subject to demonic oppression, according to these guys. Jesus says this to them, and who could say it? Who is allowed to say this? He said he, it says he accused them of hypocrisy. It's interesting, the Greek there, Hupokrites, spoke of this. A stage actor, someone that acted a part, he acted holy, he acted better than the rest, but inside him were dead men's bones. These guys, according to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he loved them, and that's why he told them the truth. If, you're, if, you, if you have cancer, you want the doctor to tell you and not just let you die. And Jesus has the courage, sanctified, given him by the Holy Spirit to say, what you're doing is wrong. You're coming at this from your own vantage and your own writings and human writings, not that which was penned by Almighty God for your benefit. And he's basically saying, stop it. And he said, you phonies, you don't live up to any of your uh, uh, perverted ideas. These were men whose whole life was without any real sincerity. There is no greater religious peril than the parable, the peril of identifying religion with outward observance. There is no common or religious mistake 
let me just say this, that doesn't require not simply an outward observance, but a change of heart. The heart is the problem. In the second place, he's going to make another comment. Let's go. Verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. He's just going to show them how phony their tradition is here. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother should surely die. God loves parents. But here's how this thing is turned on its head. Whatever, but you say if a man tells his father or mother whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is a gift to God. That's what that means, a gift given to God. What I was going to give you, mom and dad. Now, picture this. Let me set this up. The idea here is uh, I've had a fight with my dad. It's been kind of nasty and negative. My mom was there. I showed disrespect to my father, but I don't like what he said to me. And so I make a clear statement to someone, the powers that be, that I am going to make the gift that I was going to give them to allow them to live, Korban, that is dedicated to God. And when it was made Korban, the scribes and the Pharisees said, that was the end of its usefulness to your parents. And so if two weeks later you said, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? Mom and dad are senile. They're probably partly crazy. Something's really wrong with them. And I have now taken the money that they needed to live and put it aside and said I dedicated it to God. And, and the writings say, having done that, I have no access to them. And the scribes and the Pharisees, our religious leaders, say I can't touch them. They have been given and put on the altar in a place where they are no longer accessible to me or to mom and dad. And you see what a desperate and insane place that is. And Jesus says this, and you'll see this throughout the New Testament. I hope this lines it up for you. Why this conflict is somewhat endless with him when he, he is on this planet. To keep that which is good from God's people is a great sin. Jesus often, you'll just see him in the midst of a dinner when someone's saying something crazy. And your common sense is going, this is, this is nuts. What he's saying here, these people are saying, and Jesus says, uh, you, you mean I shouldn't heal this person? I shouldn't do good on the Sabbath? I shouldn't help this paralytic? Is, is that what you're saying? And that is what they're saying. They're being strangled by their own interpretations of that which is good and right and holy in the true law of God, and thereby condemning themselves and creating a class of people that labor under burdens too heavy to bear. But you say if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you will no longer permit him to do anything for his mom and dad. Thus making the word of God void. This is Jesus talking. By your tradition that you've handed down, the most religious people on the planet, the most detailed in their desire to obey the Lord. That's not true, by the way. They are Hippocrates, they are hypocrites, and many such things you do. There were many things like this. And he called the people to him in verse 14 and said to them, hear me all of you and understand there's nothing outside a person, nothing, that by going into him can defile him. Foods. This group was always telling him what food they couldn't have. There were so many, there were so many categories, it was almost impossible to serve that particular set of writings. Hear me, all of you, and understand it's not, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. 
not ham, not any number of things. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And someone, some manuscripts at this point say in verse 16, if anyone has ears, let him hear. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, about that heavenly story with an earthly meeting. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach. He's making a distinction. Listen, heart and the flesh, the physical person, but his stomach and is expelled. It's expelled. That is not the real issue of my people, of humanity. It is not what you're eating. It's what's eating you. It's what's eating you from your heart and your mind. It's your internals that are the problem. We can all play act forever. We can be hypocrites, one guy at work, and then at home we're punching our wife. And I've seen that, right? Almost all of us have at one time or another. And he said, it's not what comes out of the person, but what's in, from inside. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about it. And he said, it's that that comes out of a person which defiles him. And then he goes through a list, which we'll conclude with. For from within, this is the important part, from within out of the heart of man comes the evil thoughts. We're not worried and concerned about your washing your hands, although that can be hygienic, that's great. But that's not what they were doing here. They were condemning men. And Jesus said, the problem is not this, it's this. Come evil thoughts. Every outward act of sin that we do and perform first starts in the inside, not the outside. It starts in the human heart. Evil thoughts are where evil actions come from. Secondly, sec sexual immorality. Now, this is a broad category. It includes adultery. It's a wide word. It means every kind of treasure, every kind of traffic in sexual vice. This is wrong. It's not a cookie we eat or hands that we wash. It is something that emanates from a darkened soul, from our darkened souls, from our broken. When I come to people with the ABCs, admit, admire, admit, you know, whatever it is, uh, <laughs> admit, uh, admire, and then, uh, uh, what's the third one? Somebody help me. Somebody knows this. Am I the only one? Ask. All right. This is, when we're talking to people, I, I tell them, apart from Christ, I'm a wreck. I needed him so desperately, and they immediately ask, admire, admit. They immediately, uh, almost invariably, are willing to talk to me about Jesus. Sexual immorality in the heart. The society's coming apart based on this. No one tells their neighbor the reason they're leaving their wife is because they found some girl in row three, section two. But that's what's tormenting your dear land and our world, the inner things. Theft, in Greek there are two words for robber, kleptes and lestes. Lestes is a brigand, this is a tough, massively bad guy. And Barabbas was that kind of person. There's the other one that's just kind of a thief. This is more like Judas uh, messing with the money bag of the disciples. Uh, a kleptes is a mean, a thief is a mean, deceitful, dishonorable uh, guy without the redeeming quality of of audacious gallantry, at least, that maybe a brigand would have, which is also condemned in the heart. 
Adultery and murder speak for themselves. These emanate out of the heart. It's what we look at becomes who we are. What we are in here will emanate out in a very negative way. The, the, the uh, coveting in the Greek, this means to have more. This is that spirit that never has enough. Uh, though it takes from whomever it will, this individual once again is involved often in riotous living. Not caring about anyone. This is the prodigal son. He's out there partying and destroying his inheritance and living a life that's tormenting him and breaking him and starving him to death. How's it working for you, Dr. Phil would say? Wickedness. This is the evil person that delights in evil and wants to have others join him in the same perverseness. It starts here in the heart. Let's join together. Let's party. Let's get crazy. You've heard it all. And yet it's torturous to the individual in the long-term deceit. It translates the word bait. Deceit is like a mousetrap. It is coming in and lying. It is a, a mousetrap which promises cheese and delivers death. Sensuality is wanton wickedness. The soul given over to its own dark desires. It starts in here and then it begins to take over the whole territory and turf of the human being. It hates correction. It does what it wants and forges ahead in whatever evil pursuit. His owner's brain conjures up. It has no decency or shame. You know, Augustine, I read his biography on the vacation, Confessions. Augustine, the great saint and theologian. Do you guys know that he had an illegitimate son? Do you know that his rancid life was right out of this particular playbook and this particular word, sensuality? He lived it to the absolute full, and it did nothing but kill him. And in that killing, he was buried in baptism and raised to life by Jesus Christ. New life. He took care of his son, and he loved him, but I'm sure he had to live with that the rest of his life, and yet God was not through with him. It's important to say here, we only have moments. He was not through with him, and he's not through with you. If there's anyone within the sound of my voice that it was as admit, ad, admire, and uh, what's the third one? Uh, ask, admit, admire. Ask, admire, admit. If anyone in honesty and integrity in your heart knows that you've gone so, so far south you can't even believe it, I've been there. Augustine has been there. We've all in some sense been there, hypocrites and phonies. And yet Christ in his magnificence came and died for sinful men. Ah, slander, blasphemous talk. Pride, this is the man who thinks he's all that in a bag of chips. All others quake in his wake. It tends to hide in hearts. They talk calmly. They're really nice, nicest guy ever. And yet he brags and puts you down as soon as your back is turned. Foolishness, this has nothing to do with mental clarity. It has everything to do with bad and injurious choices. All these evil things come from within, and they are what destroy a person. Jesus is there. He un unmasks the hypocrisy of only thinking about outward signs, the things that shame, the things that condemn. You pick on people, and watch this with your children. Don't make everything, don't make their life a nightmare of rules and regulations. Fill them with love, educate them, and the Lord will bless every, the work of your hands in a, a beautiful way. But here the Lord Jesus is so tender and loving to tell us all that we are loved not based on what we do, but on a purely and a, a entirely on his grace towards us, his life in us. 
Let's bow our heads to pray. Lord, we admit we're sinners, A. We believe that Christ is the only Savior, C, we choose to follow him. Baptize us right now in your cleansing. Lord, wash over us, not simply our hands, but every part of our body in telling us that you love us and you forgive us. And then, Lord, let everyone in here who doesn't know you yet know that you love them and let them make the decision to choose to follow you. I ask this in Jesus' name.